You're listening to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm James. And I'm Joe. Welcome back, gents. A little while ago, we three talked about The Ravagers, the first volume of Big Finish Doctor Who stories that Christopher Eccleston recorded. Now the second volume, Respond to All Calls, is available. Uh, James, you suggested that we got the band back together to discuss these <laughs> stories. Uh, what what Do you prefer this one to the first set? What, what made you want to discuss this one? Oh, I can't tell you how much more I prefer this one to the first one. Um, and there's a big part of me that wishes that they had started with these three stories oh, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i know um you know last time we reviewed uh, the ravagers we i think it's fair to say it was a very mixed response um we loved eccleston but didn't necessarily like the story and I, and I remember you saying mark at the end of it you know i wonder what will happen in the next set of stories and whether or not we'll have a continuation because it Effectively, the end of the Ravagers was a big reset, and the you know the companion couldn't remember anything about the Doctor. Mm. And we've kind of just you know the second season ditched all of it. <laughs> just gone. Yeah, it made Ravagers even more irrelevant, didn't it? Like, <laughs> I know it made no impact whatsoever. You know, I went back and listened to the Ravagers episode uh, this week. I thought I was incredibly kind actually during that, if I'm honest. And I didn't say a nice thing about it. This was, uh, I thought, superior in every single way, which obviously we'll, we'll go into in time. Did you expect Nova, the de facto companion from the Ravagers, to be in this? Because I felt like that was very much like an introductory story and they were still kind of together and getting to know each other at the end of that story. I was surprised that she wasn't in this. It, it was a bit, I mean, you spend three stories introducing this character at the end of the three stories then go through her having her memory wiped but there was no indication that he was just going to drop her off back at home and then carry on you know I honestly thought she was going to be the companion during this season and maybe she'd start to remember some of the, the you know some of the adventures or maybe the character would change again you know and develop in a different way but no, <laughs> I'm sorry. Who who's Nova again? <laughs> I think I think you might have had your memory wiped there. I, well, I tend to get some unmemorable data, so uh, I don't really recall much about Ravages, if I'm honest. Oh. I assume they don't want to tread on the toes of Series One and have the Doctor have a really sort of deep connection with a companion before he meets Rose. Yeah. So that's why in this one we've got um, pseudo companions for each story, don't we? But how long can that continue for? Like, are they just going to keep doing box sets? Because there's a few, there's another one planned, isn't there? There's there's one a few, well, there's, I think, is it 12 more stories he's just signed up to? Oh, okay. So I'm assuming at some point they're going to do, you know, some kind of character arc. Otherwise, what are we going to do? Like, just anthology stories for Christopher Eccleston's Doctor. All the others are kind of, even the uh, classic series doctors have moved across the box sets yeah and and there's sort of lots of arcs going i'm assuming they're going to go that way with, with the next wave so we've got two more of uh, two more in this first set uh, first series so presumably six more stories and we know that he teams up with the brigadier i think in in volume three yeah there's some details have been released about that already haven't they yeah, we've got the Cybermen and the Brigadier in the next set, haven't we? 
Yeah. Okay, I'm going to ask you a very quick question then before we head in, because obviously that's the Brigadier, not Brigadier, right? Deep Fake Brigadier as played by John Coleshaw. Yeah. What do you guys think about the recasts? Um, I'll be very honest. John Coleshaw, for me, nails the Brigadier. And I recently listened to a trailer, I think it's for the next sort of third Doctor season, and his is the most um, recognisable, the, you know, the, the, the closest. I, I can almost imagine that it is actually uh, the Brigadier. I'm less sold on the third Doctor. Um, and like, you don't want to say anything too, too kind of mean about the daughters of Caroline John and um, Liz Sladen. But they don't have the cadence of Liz Shaw and Sarah Jane Smith. But I think, so I think it's very hit and miss, isn't it? I think the with the, the two of them, you know, and um, they're not trying to do impressions of their mothers. That they're, 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 you know, and they're quite uh, open about that. There's certainly a certain twang to the voice occasionally that you think, oh yeah, I know who that is that, that's speaking. But I don't think that they would say that they're trying to do impressions of their... Um, also, like, um, what's his name? David Bradley is the first doctor. That's very much like a reinterpretation isn't yeah. it? rather than an yeah. impression of Harlem. But it depends. I suppose it depends what you're looking for, isn't it? If you're looking for something that sounds authentically like the person, like uh, John Coleshaw does, yeah. or whether you're happy just to... What this has to do with respond to all calls, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Taken us off topic already, Jay. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Won't be the last time. I know. So I think we're talking about uh, maybe like a, a series arc, you know, coming into the Eccleston stories at some point. There's not really an arc here, but these, as the title suggests, they respond to all calls. These are all stories where the Doctor is responding to somebody in distress. Hmm. and They each carry themes, I think, of loss and loneliness, echoing the sort of post-Time War point in the Doctor's life. Everyone's lost someone or something yeah and i i I think we we touched on this last time and i was having a discussion with someone yesterday funnily enough about this and it's the doctor you see in season one but you know uh, by the time you get to the dalek story that's when you really start to see this damaged doctor and the conversation we were having is that you know why isn't the doctor damaged in these stories and i said well for me if you look at if you go back to watch rose the doctor isn't really damaged in that he's you know he's mid-adventure when we meet him you know he's he's already tracked the autons down and he you know he sort of says to rose run for your life and it's he's quite light-hearted and that's how he is in these stories especially these three stories there is an element of the time war that, that that gets briefly discussed but he's not this um you know damaged doctor that you see later on in season one when he when he meets the dalek for example so i i think you're right the stories echo loss and he does um you know there's 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 part of him i think in the third story as well you know when he's when he's trapped there's there's that part of him that you know he knows that he's not he's not himself he's still quite damaged by it but it doesn't 
necessarily come out in the stories as in him saying, this is what I've been going through. It's interesting because in the first set, I seem to remember sort of lamenting the fact that he's kind of playing quirky throughout, you know, and he's it's it's all kind of high energy and really terrible jokes. <laughs> Whereas I felt this set almost mirrored series yes. one. Yes. I the first story, it was a bit more of that. It was it was kind of lighthearted. It was a serious topic, but he was very like it was very eccentric, Christopher Eccleston, in that first story. Yeah. Um, then in the second one, there is, it was like a very urgent situation and Eccleston plays against that really, really well when he's got lots of problems to solve. And, and there was like a chance for him to be a bit more thoughtful mm. and lean into some character work, which really plays to his strengths. And then in the last one, there was lots of kind of discussion about what the doctor's done across time. Yeah. And there was this, yeah. there was this feeling that, you know, he is a, a, an old man and he's done a lot. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I thought I thought his characterization was generally a lot more thoughtful in this than the first one, yeah. and and played more to Eccleston's strengths. I mean, the, he I, certainly in that last one, I thought he was absolutely was on fire. I mean, the 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 first one, it, you could imagine it being in season one. If you swap out the policewoman mm-hmm. and put Rose in, it would fit perfectly with some of those some of those stories. I think you're right. The third one, and they are three very different stories that, like you say, you see a di- different style or dynamic to the Doctor. The third one, because it's quite a limited cast and because a lot of it does centre around the Doctor, whereas a lot of other stories don't. The Doctor's in it, but it doesn't centre around him, whereas the third story it does, you know, pretty much it's him and the, the computer most of the time. You know, there's there's a bit of plot going on around them. But you get to to see Eccleston show his, you know, real range of, mm. you know, different um, emotions. And, you know, he's, he's, he's just brilliant. And he carries it. But he carries it with a level of enthusiasm and passion that just made you know for me personally i was like please come back <laughs> please yeah come back and do another scene that last one was so stripped back wasn't it mm. it was so stripped back in terms of the amount of characters there and what was happening that the doctor had nowhere to hide i.e there wasn't lots of plot complications yeah. or anything like that yeah. to distract you it was literally the doctor the ai and the two other characters yeah. so the doctor's characterization had to be good and I think what, what was the guy's name? Timothy Atak. Is that the writer of the last one? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I thought he did a phenomenal job with Eccleston in that. Yeah, yeah. I think you know, just go back to what you were saying about the Doctor being zany in Series One, and it it's the 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 grief and the trauma comes out once he allows himself to get close to somebody yeah. and open up. Um, which which we're not going to see, I don't think, in any of these sets for the time being. And but also when he meets the Dalek, which I guess also isn't on the cards. So yeah, it's, it's quite subtly done here. And I think the theme here is is of sort of unseen things going on underneath the surface of the characters. So you've got in the first story, Marnie and her dad, they they can't communicate, yeah. and then she's there, but he can't see her. And in the second story, you've got the characters of Artie and Maurice who. They've got all this grief, but that's driving them, but nobody knows about it. And then you've literally got the Doctor, which we're getting to obviously in the third story, is a statue. Yeah. There's lots of stuff going on actually internally, but he looks like he's just kind of made of wood and and just planted. So there's a lot of, of, of sort of beneath the surface 
Stop. Tell me you got um, Keeper of Tarkin vibes from that last one. Yeah. I, I basically just wrote down, the Doctor is Melka yeah. in this. He's just this statue that the AI keeps coming to visit for 90 years. But the, you know, the thing, and I know we're skipping ahead and uh, we're doing these completely out of order, Mark, but, um, <laughs> you know, the fact that he is constantly trying to regenerate as well. So you yeah. really feel you know, for the doctor in that situation, you know, he, he's stuck there for hundreds of years and he thinks the only way out is to regenerate. And he can't even do that. You know, he's, he, the AI goes to see him and talks about how there's this yellow, you know, yellow light coming from him every so often where he's trying to mm. force himself free by regenerating. And, you know, it, it just, it just shows the, it's a very clever bit of writing, and it, it just shows the desperation that he's, you know, he's experiencing. That felt very Eccleston's Doctor as well. Yeah. I think there was a line in there that, you know, he, in order to escape, he took himself to like the brink of death. That feels very Eccleston's Doctor to me to like to go to those lengths. Yeah. So should we go through the stories <laughs> in order? Oh, um, do it. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll, I'll start with uh, Girl Deconstructed, which is, I really enjoyed this. And as I just said, this is a story that I could imagine that the Doctor and Rose, you know, in season one, coming across this. Uh, well, essentially, it's a story about haunted houses and, and people going missing, but it's it's another sort of fresh take on that. Um and you, you again, we sort of joined the doctor midway through again, a bit like Rose. He's not just arrived on earth, he's he's been here for a little while, he's already um, in the house investigating. When the I think it's uh, DC Juna, I think it is Juna Lee appears, who's the Rose, the companion, um, sort of substitute for this story. Uh, 62. People have gone missing. Young people have gone missing in an hour. So again, you've got that—that that, you know—the feeling that it can be quite a dark story. All these teenagers going going missing, but they've gone missing because they—they, they, you know, they—they in Marnie's case, for example, has had a row with her dad and just wants to be out of there, you know. And who's not had an experience when they, you know, when they were younger, when they were in their teenage years, where they've you know, basically said, I'm going to run away or, you know, I wish I wish I was on my own. So it, it, it's it's a very uh, relatable sort of experience. And then you have this sort of alien race, which is picking up on these these young people. This um, I keep calling them the cellophane and they're not the cellophane. I kept thinking he was saying Zeraphim. Uh, I thought this was yes. a sequel to Time Flight. Yeah, Seraphim. <laughs> Seraphim. I think they're called. Yeah. Um, that have basically come down and deconstructed them, like, you know, a bit like a teleporter, deconstructed them, but then realized that even broken up into atoms, they were too heavy and just sort of left them as this ghostly presence. Uh, and, again, you know, and I, I love how uh, this taps into that, that feeling um, of, you know, you're in the room and you feel like you're not alone. Or when something falls off the wall unexpectedly, it, it could be someone whose whose presence is still there, but you know, deconstructed like uh, Marnie is. So, I I I really enjoyed this story. I I just 
compared to the first three stories, I just thought this was a this would have been for me a really good starter to Eccleston's big finish because it is so season one, in my opinion. I mean, it lent into character far more than Ravages. And that was very series one, wasn't it? Like, I think the in into series one was <clears throat> via the character drama rather than a lot of the plots. Mm. And this was this was very like that. Um, I, it's weird. You say this was like a, a fresh take on this, but this felt like a fusion of like quite a few stories to me. Mm. Did you ever watch um, Adrift in Torchwood series two? Yes. That that so that was all about sort of kids going missing, mm. wasn't it? Um, and honestly, it did it a lot more compellingly i thought than this um and then there was a kind of like people being stardust which felt very voyage of the damned and the empty child uh like the nano the nanobots and there's a fabulous red dwarf episode a last day red dwarf episode with a 3d printer where they would create this mutant rimmer and i got kind of echoes of that towards you not 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 that there was a <laughs> mutant person created out of a free but they were 3d printing people at the end I thought it was very, very simple. It was really cleanly told, but it was a story that kind of had a... It was quite short as well, wasn't it? It was like 43 yeah, minutes or something like that. Season one episode length. Yeah, and like the last one was nearly an hour, and I think they used the time quite well. Mm. But the like, it, it felt like we, we kind of got in very, very quickly. And it's a, it's a really arresting opening with the uh with like the child going missing and but the child being in the room mm. talking to the dad whilst he's sort of really sad that that she's gone missing and that that again felt very rusty davis but it and it, it skipped along it was very breezy it was it was very like i didn't feel like it wasn't dull but the whole thing just felt to me like extremely competently told rather than compellingly told um mm. Maybe maybe I'm being a little harsh. <laughs> I'm not sure. Inoffensive is what I'd say. I still say it was better than Ravagers because yeah. I think I approach Doctor Who usually uh, as as a character piece, but especially the new series. And Ravagers was just all concept and you know hyperbole, whereas this had like the what was the name of the detective that the Doctor was working uh, with, Jana Lee. Yeah. That was a nice relationship, I thought, kind of spiky um, and interesting. And, you know, it was really nice that um, she had lost somebody as well. And, like, the ending, I think, would have felt a bit pat if they just 3D printed everybody and it was all fine. And then that that kind of twist at the end, oh, no, we can't save the person that you were close yeah. to, gave it a bit of a, a bit of an edge um, that I thought the rest of the story was missing. Like that, it, it wasn't. It wasn't horrible. It just felt. It felt to me like a lot of big finish feels to me these days, and that is very competent. I, if you bought it, you wouldn't be annoyed that you bought it, but you don't really need to hear it. I, 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 I thought there was a there was a wonderful scene where he, the father, broke the ornaments that that she'd bought from the zoo, and, mm. and I, I. I I think there was. Uh, you're right in the fact that it's not. If you compare this to Ravages, <laughs> this is a lot better than. Ra- well, I know we're going to do this a lot. It's a lot better than Ravages, but it doesn't have as much going on. You know, Ravages was the whole timey wimey, confuse the hell out of you business, uh, whereas this was quite a straightforward 
standalone story. And and to be fair, all you know, all three of these stories are are standalone stories. Um, but I felt there was emotion in it, and I felt there was, uh, you know, like you said, there was a great relationship with um, with the detective. You know, at the beginning where. She's sort of she's talking to the father, and the father keeps saying, "Well, yeah, I've already spoken to your colleague about this," and it takes her ages. <laughs> you know, she's just like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, uh, I need to ask you this question." He's like, "Oh, but I've already given this answer," and, and you get the whole sort of like, "Oh, who are you?" sort of thing. Um, I, I just think it, it's very. Um, it, 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 I keep saying this; it's very in keeping with season one and and the, the, the Doctor, and I just felt it was very comforting it may not set the world on mm. on fire but it was it was something that not, I, not every story yeah, has to though it was something it? I just some, yeah and enjoy like you say as like a gentle opening to this uh, you know i always find it really interesting when it doesn't happen very often when there isn't like a, an antagonist in a doctor who mm. story and i always think that's a really brave move like in the forest of the night does that and you know it's a ghastly episode of doctor who but i think it's really brave uh, you know, to not have a villain or a monster, and this doesn't either, yeah. does it? The the yeah. Seraphine are what does it say? They can't distinguish between voice and yeah. four, so they're thinking that people wishing that they were somewhere else means they actually want to be somewhere else. So it through some various weird technobabble <laughs> turns them into starlight to get them away, and then they're just kind of sort of flying floating about the earth. It's an it's an interesting idea, and it's a bold move as well because it, it means there's n- sort of no grandstanding in this at all. There's none of the sort of doctor versus the villain. Yeah, and and he, you know, Eccleston's doctor is 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 very you know when you watch um, oh what's it called you know the gas mask mummy one the oh empty, empty child you know at the end where he says everybody lives does. There's always um, a sort of hopeful optimism uh, about him, and you get that in this story. You know, he doesn't blame them because I, th- I think it's um, you know DC Lee sort of going, "Oh, that's barbaric, and how horrible that they're they're doing this." And he's just like, "Why? This, you know, he's they're trying to help these people. Okay, they're doing it wrong, and they're causing these people to go missing, but." They're doing it from a good place, and he's very, you know, he's very, you know. Normally, you see him, like you say, grandstand and sort of say, "I'm going to defend Earth and I'm going to stop all this," but he's genuinely just like, "This is what they do," and it's not out of malice or evil. It's just them trying to help, and they, you know, they come along, they pick you up, they say, "We can't carry you, sorry," and move on. What well, reminded me slightly of is. But you heard where you've got those aliens that uh, that that come along and aren't malevolent in themselves, but uh, again you've got like the misunderstood child and and they end up, uh, you know, doing something with the kid that you know ends up causing problems. But but like say it isn't it isn't actually a villain of the piece. So I thought we shared some DNA with that as well. Do you remember the end of In the Forest of the Night when Annabelle appears out of fairy dust and she's like, Annabelle, the thought of you came to me. Maybe this is like a fusion of Fear Her and In the Forest of the Night. I mean, there's a screaming endorsement for any story. (laughs) I wouldn't. There was a lovely sentiment at the end where the doctor said, uh, next time you walk into an empty room, say hello, because you don't know who could be there. That was really, really Um, Yeah. 
I think that thing of being a teenager and not feeling seen or listened to, uh, you know, was a was a good theme. And I really liked that it was set in 2004 because whenever you get like modern day Earth stories in Doctor Who, they tend to be set obviously in the time when it's being filmed, and that's that's where a, a pre series one pre Rose season would be set. Yeah, it would be 2004. Um, so I like I like that, that they they you know made that detail because it could have been set any time, but it's set in 2004. And I also really liked it being set in Scotland. Yeah. Because, I mean, I suppose they want to avoid contemporary London because it's too similar to Series 1. But I think Scotland's somewhere that they they would only visit to, uh, you know, for, for an important historical event or person or to, like, to go to Loch Ness, you know, kind of like a theme park sort of Scotland. But it's nice just to have it as a place in the UK where people live and go about their business, which isn't something you see that often in Doctor Who. Big Finish do a lot of that, though, don't they? Like, they they, they like, uh, they kind of lean into um, regional stories and regional accents, and they kind of shake it up far more than the TV series does, which is very refreshing, I've got to say. Except when they bring in actors that aren't from those areas, and then it's agonising. But that didn't happen here, so we're okay. Yeah, these are all Scottish actors, aren't they, which you learned from the, oh, from the yeah. scenes. Um, Forbes yeah. Mason, who uh, was in one of my favourite comedies, The High Life. Oh, I've not seen that. Oh, if you've not seen it, it's Alan Cumming and Forbes Mason play the campist air stewards. So it was only a six-episode thing, and it's about a Scottish airline called Air Scotia, um, and it's just hilarious. Alan Cumming played somebody. Camp. That is a it's revelation. A, do you know? Completely out of character, I know. Can I just say one thing? There was one bit at the end of this story that oh, made me want to dive like into the sofa, and that was that happy birthday scene at the end. Now, I really loved... I like the sentiment behind it. This guy hasn't had, what was it, 20 birthdays, so they're going to celebrate them all. But Eccleston singing happy birthday and going, woo, yeah, that's not his wheelhouse, I'm afraid. And, it, <laughs> and there was like a really bad joke, like an end of a Blake 7 episode, and they're all kind of going, ha, 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 ha. And I'm like, oh, no, what's this? You know, like... Why have we taken this turn? And it had like a moral, didn't it? There was a moral to this story of don't take anyone for granted. Yes. It was very uh, 1980s cartoon, wasn't it? You know, you always got at the end of He-Man or um, Mask or something like that, there would always be one of the characters would come up to the uh, the camera and just go, on today's episode, we learnt. And it was <laughs> kind of like that. <laughs> And like whilst whilst I appreciate the moral of don't take people for granted, I, I think I was like, that's the moral of this. Like you know, we kind of that's a very obvious moral to a story, and we're still going to do it anyway. So, <laughs> uh, but but it was it was nice, you know. It was it it like you said, it's not going to set your world on fire, but it was perfectly listenable. There was some you you mentioned James. I really liked the scene as well where the ornament yeah. broke because it revealed so much about their relationship and their past. Just by having them both talk about that ornament, mm. I really like that as a as a real character scene. It was really it, deep. It was such a simple thing and such a short scene, but told you so much. And I think sometimes in in storytelling, particularly now, you know, you don't get that much character development sometimes, and yeah. you certainly don't get it as beautifully done as that. Because it was things that they couldn't say to each other. Up to that point, when they were both just living in the house normally, they could only say it when, from the dad's point of view, when when he thought the daughter wasn't there, and the daughter knowing that the dad couldn't hear her. 
so yeah it was it was a really beautiful piece of writing and oh, then, are you are you suggesting that we all need to be turned to pixie dust so we can communicate with our loved ones well <laughs> maybe not that extreme. it's worth a shot yeah work for me yeah <laughs> and the, the, the scene that, I, in terms of a light scene that I really liked, was when the doctor was moving the TARDIS, yes. think out the bedroom onto the landing, and he got the timing slightly wrong. And he saw himself, didn't he? Yeah, so he arrived before he yeah. set off. Just a neat, a neat little thing, but it, it you know, reintroduces, I suppose, as well, the idea that he is a time traveler uh, for the other characters and for new listeners, if there are any. This was um, written and directed by yeah, women, so, wasn't it? This and, and it's very rare for Doctor Who to be written out. I think it's only happened. What is it? Enlightenment. Is there two new series episodes? I th- is one of the chip ones. Enlightenment and Can You Hear Me? I think. And this is that it? Yes, yeah, Lisa Mullen, who was who's done Stranded. She's done um, some of the Eighth Doctor stuff. She certainly did uh, an episode of the Time War series. Uh, that was when I ducked out. I'm afraid. Sorry, Lisa. Um, it was it was all set on the Gallifrey. Have you heard any of the no, Time I War haven't. stuff? No. It was all set on like um, the Gallifrey and like Time War training camp academy, and it had scenes of like the Time Lords going, "I'm going to be a Time Lord soldier," and I was like, "Oh no, I'm out." Sorry. It was it was re- it was one of those one of those moments where you're like okay there was a reason where Rusty Davis did not show you the time <laughs> war and this was one of them but yeah, but 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 it's uh, you know I'm not saying she's terrible like she's done she's written quite a few uh, stories for Big she Finish has. now and this just shows you know she she can absolutely write for audio and the director was Helen Goldwyn for all of these stories oh. and and Helen Goldwyn's um, form is just terrific like she did um what was it called there was a story set on gallifrey it's sorry <laughs> oh yeah. am i oh sorry <laughs> um sorry we're listening to the story <laughs> Woo! <laughs> um yeah i think um i think it was called out of no, not out of time I can't remember what it's called, but it's set on Gallifrey. It's Peter Davison post the Five Doctors, where he takes up the role of president of Gallifrey. Leela's like his right hand woman, and Tegan's the power behind the throne. It's a terrific script, but Helen Goldwyn's direction of it is out of this world. And with this set, I just thought with each story, she got better and better mm. with the execution of the stories. Sorry about that. That was me. I was talking about Big Finish, and my phone decided that it was going to play it for us. You were going to play some. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mark, keep it in. This is guerrilla podcasting. It can't just be mine that, that, that where we have these problems. I've turned it off. This is the problem with we've got the uh, the Google Home, and if anybody on TV mentions Google, yeah, um, then it responds and says, "I don't understand the question." Or something Somebody on mine the other day um, shouted out. Um, Siri, play porn music. And I thought, no, don't say that. That means that everyone has listened to this on a speaker. Well, when it went well, you know, <laughs> we're in trouble. So, Joe, the second story is called Fright Motif. Yes, by Tim Foley, who's also written a lot of big finished stories. I'm very quickly, I haven't like prepared an opening statement. Sorry, I wasn't. I, 
wasn't quite aware I had to do that. So I'm just going to very quickly read the synopsis and then give you a few thoughts, and then maybe you guys can uh, pitch in on the back mm. of that. Uh, in post-war Paris, musician Artie Berger has lost his mojo but gained a predator, something that seeps through the cracks of dissonance to devour the unwary. Luckily for Artie, the doctor is here. Unluckily for everybody, he needs a bait to trap the monster. Now, already that sounds great, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think this, listening to this um, before the last one, I was like, yeah, this, this is sort of the, the standard we should be aiming for. Uh, this is much better than competent. I thought the dialogue was really, really sharp. And just the production felt like a step up as well. Like it's set in post-war Paris and that's a, a very evocative setting. And I think they kind of lent into that a lot. Like the whole sequence at the end in the bar, the, the music mm. bar, I thought that sounded amazing. Um, and having an audio creature, uh, it's not a fresh idea for Big Finish. And, you know, you could imagine so because it's, a, you know, an oral medium. Uh, Whispers of Terror did it, static iterations of Eye and Cold Equations. But it does mean that Foley can do something like very creative and atmospheric with the medium, which he does in this. I, I thought really, really, there's some very, very creepy scenes in this. The scariest that we've had sort of in the run so far. Um, it's a small cast again, but very memorable characters. Now, Artie, is it Artie Berger? Is that how you say it? Or Berger? Berger. That's, that's a real person, isn't it? Like that's That's a real historical character I, I wasn't aware that it was yeah i went onto wikipedia and had a look I... and and it was so that so this is like almost like a celebrity historical but obviously someone who's slightly less well known um i thought he was like very very well done but do you know who really stood out for me was um maurice yes. hmm and the the whole um, you know the illicit gay romance uh, and the the drop of that halfway through the episode, which I thought was really beautifully done. Like we are a world away from Nick Briggs' characterization here, um, and that again that leads into the era as well of, of that having to be kept a secret. And um, I really I felt like there was some real sentiment and real emotion in this. Um, and the idea that uh, this thing is like drawn to depression, isn't it? And grief. So each of the characters in this story, you know, is dealing with something quite heavy. So we get to know them quite well. We get close to them. Yeah, I thought, I thought this was fantastic, really. What did you yeah. guys think of this? Um, I just looked it up and you're absolutely right. Arthur Berger. Yeah, American composer and music critic. So, uh, yeah. Um I had no idea about that either. That that is that gives a whole different complexion to it. I, I, I think this, you know, whereas the the first story goes at some pace and it's it's quite, even though we're talking about missing children, it's quite light-hearted and it, it doesn't go too dark, too serious. This one is it's very different in tone. You've got this sort of silent, invisible enemy that's stalking them. Um, like you say, he's, he's feeding off the grief. I love the 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 backstory, the love story. Uh, you know, it's really really sad when they go to the apartment, which he's still maintaining as it is, and there is that sense of uh, you know, um, Artie himself is grieving. 
You've got Maurice who's grieving. You've got the doctor who does talk about grief. It doesn't specifically, you know, say, all my people are dead. Like he does, you know, he starts doing in season one. Um, But he does talk about grief and and how it can have an impact on people. So for me, there's a much more serious um, underlying, you know, uh, theme going on uh, around his own grief. So, yeah. James, do you remember in in Ravagers, like they they put a, a like a gay theme scene in, didn't they? That terribly oh. laboured joke oh, with yes. the guard. Do you remember? Yeah. With the doctor <laughs> flirting. With the Wasn't this just so much more sensitive and so much more interesting and complex than that? It, it was, and, and it was so well acted as well you know they're they're at the apartment and then they you know i think it's one of the characters says oh you know these photos and and, you know pictures and and then he explains what happened and you know and then you get that he sacrifices himself as well so not only have you got this grief not only have you got the fact that he's, he's he's kept the apartment exactly how it was and you know in the hope that you know the memory doesn't fade or you know even in the hope that he might come back even though he would know he he won't and then as soon as you know the creature gets to them he's like go i'm you know he knows exactly what he's he's doing he's sacrificing himself to save them but he's he's just happy to do you know he's willing to do it because you know maybe he's he's realized that he's still grieving he's not moving on his life is not functioning really because of the because of the grief and he and he sacrifices himself and it's very well done but it's very poignant and quite sad that what you say there that's one of my least favorite tropes in any drama right is the self-sacrifice scene and doctor who leads Mm. into it a lot remember the timeless children with ko sharmas going, you know, I'm an old man, I've lived to the end of my life. And he's basically signposting throughout the entire hour that he's going to sacrifice himself. So when it comes, you're hardly going, oh, no. You go, oh, come on, you've been talking about it for an hour. Get on with it. Um, this this lent into that, but it was so well done because of the other character's yes. reaction to him sacrificing it. And what was the, the woman's name? Yeah, she had quite a, a kind of a, a sharp relationship with yes. him, didn't she? They were they were quite compassionate, and she's really moved by the fact that he's died. And I and I thought that's that's some complex characterization there, you know. And we haven't really we've got an hour to tell this story, so we haven't really got long to get to know these people, and to make me a sort of genuinely moved within an hour, I thought that was yeah, that was a terrific job. It's great the way Maurice goes from you think he's going to be a sort of stock character like a Jobsworth who's just going to obstruct the Doctor. Um, you know, it seems like he's there to, to to get in the way. You know, he, sent, he assumes immediately the Doctor is That's the piano it, yeah. tuner um, and he just wants rid of him and he wants to stop Zazie being there as well because he doesn't approve of, of her visiting Artie. And, but then, the, in the, what they say, in the course of that hour, the way he changes from that, Jobsworth, who's just very snippy and he's very conservative and disapproving, isn't he? He doesn't approve of jazz. He doesn't approve of Artie having a female visitor in his room. And then they slowly peel back the layers and you realise that he's really helped Artie because he knows that Artie's mum's died and he's given him some accommodation to help him save up for a flight home. And then about his loss, it's, it's, yeah, it's a real fantastic character arc. Yeah. 
I thought as well, the whole sort of um, depression angle. Remember what I said about in the first one, you know, the moral of the story was sort of very simple and a bit pat. The, there was a line in this one, which I thought was, it's just so beautifully summed up, um, digging yourself out of a hole, with where um, the doctor said, you don't have to come out yet, but it's good to let yeah. others in. And it just summed it up. Now, I uh, when I was 30, I had um, quite a serious breakdown and I didn't work for a year. And that was advice that was given to me at the time. And it, the second I started talking to people about what I was going through, that was when I started digging myself out of that hole. And I thought to be able to say something as profound as that in a Doctor Who story, yeah. amazing. There were some, some, other, mm. some other bits... Um more light-hearted the, the doctor talks about how how the, the rift broke the tardis translation circuits and has turned venusian into cockney which i thought was just you know it's just one of those things i wrote down and i was just like weird um, <laughs> the doctor says no more echoing oh, echoing yeah. the uh the yeah. war doctor um wouldn't, wouldn't you love to see the, the soundproofing device, yeah. the blanket fort that they built? I wish that was on TV because that was such a good idea. I, I was just thinking of all the sort of big Finnish people in their homes because, of course, they've all been doing their – they've all set up their own recording studios. And that is exactly how I imagine yeah. that they'd be doing it with duvets and <laughs> blankets, you know, uh, making these – Have you uh, seen Peter Davison's little hidey hole that he's got under the stairs? Yeah. It's so funny. <laughs> Oh, how can we minimise the noise? And they're like, uh, what have we been doing for the last two years? <laughs> yeah. um, oh, what about the um, the whole, the, the, the riff on the Christmas carol, uh, Snow on Snow at the end? I really yeah. like that as well. Like a bit of poetry in there too. Like this, this kind of had a bit of everything, didn't it? It did. Mm. Um, it's the bit where he does a stand-up routine as well, very badly. But he does yeah. a stand-up routine because he deliberately wants to stun the audience. So he's, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's funnier than that happy birthday scene <laughs> in the first one. I'll tell you, no matter how bad that stand-up routine was. It just reminded was. me again of the empty child when he gets up on stage and goes, "Has anyone seen a bomb?" And, you know, they're all laughing at him, and he's like, "What are you all finding so funny?" Yeah. Um, you know, whereas this time he was he was deliberately, um, you know, trying to be mm. bad. <laughs> To, uh, to get them to uh, I know the empty child was set during the war, wasn't it? But it did have a similar sort of atmosphere. This didn't it? It's very evocative, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that, and that thing about you say the accents—it's it's a nice way of saying yeah, nobody's going to put on a cod French accent for this. So Thank we're going to hang a lot. We're going to hang a lantern on it and say this. This is why they all sound English. Yeah, <laughs> oh, they have done that. You know, in the Marian conspiracy, right at the beginning, there was like this French priest. He's like, "You insult the Queen." It was basically Sergius from um, King's Demons, mm. but he was in the whole story. Oh, it was agonising. <laughs> <laughs> But that was, I just, I just thought it was very confidently told. It had a, like an interesting monster, um, which allowed the writer to be quite creative, like uh, in an audio script. Um, the sound design was excellent. And Eccleston, I think he was given like punchier, more yeah. memorable dialogue as well. And he just 
felt very confident and very in control in this. Yeah, but at the same time, dropping yeah. the, the tone, especially in those sensitive moments, just he just you know he's an amazing actor, and he just delivers. You know, he can go from this you know light-hearted, jovial uh, character to to someone you you know we're going to talk about the third story in a minute where you see this definitely in spades where he can become so serious and so dramatic and, and, and then he's so soft you know he's like when you've got an actor as uh, strong as christopher eccleston to give him characterization as appalling as ravages is is an insult frankly this uh, this you're right this should have been his first set this this is worthy of him as an actor Definitely, yeah, a brilliant story. Like you say, really evocative. Um, just a lovely, lovely deep story, and it, it's quite kind of like a chase yeah. movie type thing as well. They keep going from location to location. I like that. And I think this is one of those stories that works really well on audio. And you, you know, I was I often tried to visualize it and think, what would this look like on the TV? But I think when you're dealing with sort of an invisible. Uh, yeah, sound creature. Actually, audio is the best format for that kind of adventure because you, you, you sense it rather than, you know, see it. You'd have to have like you know the effect they use for boss yeah. that kind of uh, you know lie detector thing. You'd have to have like a CGI yeah. version of that on TV, <laughs> wouldn't you? I was like just to show that there's sound playing out. Uh, no, I think a snow covered Paris as well. You just just need to hear that description and uh, it, it all falls into place as well, doesn't it? And they talk about the faded glory and and uh, and luxury of the hotels, um, and even Maurice's. I think tales they say is you know he's, he's got these really old tales that are quite worn as well. I think um, for me with Big Finish, so I ducked out of Big Finish a couple of years ago, um, and when you asked me to do Ravages, I listened to that and I was like, yeah, I made the right choice. Like they're not producing stuff that I really want to pay for. When I listened to this, I was like, wow, they still got it. Like, like they can still produce really fantastic work. And the last two stories of this set has actually encouraged me to go. I bought some more today. So and I'm passing with money again, <laughs> big finish. Which ones did you buy Joe? Um, I've got a couple of the Warmaster sets because I, I find Scott Hancock, anything that, that he's associated with is generally of a really high caliber. So I got that. I got the latest um, Gallifrey set as well because I just love all those characters. It's basically mm. spin-off stuff. And I think I might get the Sixth Doctor, the oh, 11 yes. as well, just because Colin Baker can do no wrong in my eyes. Uh, I've got that one to listen to. Uh, the most recent Warmaster one, I can't quite remember the name of it. The one with Nissa and Joe oh, Grant in yes. it. Oh, yeah. That's quite, yeah. I have listened to that one. It's it's very, it's quite hard to listen to. I, I had to break that up a bit because uh, without giving any spoilers, um, it doesn't work out well for any of the, uh, the characters that you like. And then there's so much about a virus in it and food shortages and things like that. That's very, that's very Scott Hancock, you know, for it to be, to be very dark and challenging. But I like that. You know, so much Big Finish is just leaning into nostalgia and, you know, riffs on or sequels to Doctor Who stories. I think, like, they could do a bit more of that, if I'm honest. 
Oh, you, you've enticed me even more. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'd also, I'd, I'd probably recommend that The Young War Doctor, uh, The War Doctor Begins, or I'm not quite sure what it's called. Jonathan Carney is incredible. You know, we were talking a little bit earlier about John Coulshaw and, um, you know, the, uh, the, the sort of recasting. Jonathan Carney is by far the most successful. He's indistinguishable from wow. John Hurt and but gives a performance like a real performance as well as sounding uncannily like the original I think that's Scott Hancock produced as well you know he basically is the seal of quality on Big Finish I think yeah. at the moment and the final story in this set is called Planet of the End the Doctor responds to a distress call from the planet Acasus, a bucolic world where the only life is apparently an AI guardian, which he names Fred. Fred's yeah. a great character, duty-bound to imprison the Doctor for trespassing, but very quickly sort of won over by the Doctor. And you feel like Wood help him, but then their boss turns up and he gets turned to Wood. Uh, where we find out this is all a plan by the arch-capitalist race, the Incorporated, to take over the Doctor's body and commercialise his image and brand. So I, I really love this story as well. I kind of It made me think the Incorporated must have appeared somewhere else in Big Finish, by the way the Doctor recognised them and, and said that it sounded like maybe he'd previously defeated yeah. them because he talked about them having died out. But I realised I think I was conflating them with Conglomerate from the fourth Doctor audios where you've got David Warner uh, and I did, I did a little bit of checking, and I think this is their first appearance. But you know, in um, Great Show in the Galaxy, where the Doctor says to the Gods of Ragnarok, "You know, I have defeated you all through time." You know, like, I think it's a bit like that. You know, unspoken yeah. adventures, but they're there. Yeah. But there's some elements of that reminded me of the Sunmakers, where there's a lot of puns and jokes around um, sort of corporate speak. Um, so, so a lot of that was quite fun. But they go to town with that at the end, don't they? There was like there was like this montage like, let's get you incorporated, prepare for prepare for takeover. You shall be monetized with complete prejudice. Yeah. <laughs> They're just getting all the lines out they haven't used in the story. You I know, mean, you've but got it was that very bit funny. At the beginning, it's a very atmospheric opening where they're they're talking about is it all the people they've condemned, or you know, all the people that have uh that have been been sort of killed or something they're, they're talking about all these different races or these different people um yeah it's got massive it, scope it has, isn't it, it, it and this is probably the, the closest we've come to really talking about the time war because they talk about the aftermath of the time war where you've got all of these other beings that have you know seen the daleks and the time lords wiped out and they're trying to fill that void they're trying to become the new super race which is I, I quite like that 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 idea you don't really you don't, you don't really see that in the tv series but it, you know imagine the you know the universe has been at war for so many years and so many races have died out that now you've got new races coming forward vying for top dog yeah like a yeah. power vacuum isn't there that they're in a race to to fill it's always interesting when we go to like the end of the universe, which we've done a couple of times now in Doctor, haven't we? Um, 
it, I think they always paint a really, and, and it always feels like a bit more high stakes as well, just because of, of when it's there. You know what I loved was the doctor's reason for going there and the, the AI's response to it, where she goes, um, what, you were going to spend 100 years being pedantic, rewriting <laughs> history books. That's just yeah. so the doctor, there's isn't a, it? There's a beautiful relationship between the doctor and oh, the AI, so I, you know, uh, between the doctor and Fred. And it just... Um, you know the the sort of dialogue between them, and and Fred develops, you know, in in every conversation that they have, from from being quite sort of computery, if you like, and my function is this, and to becoming more, or you know, fulfilling that companion role, um, and then when the Doctor is turned into the statue, the computer, you know, Fred is still learning, still developing. Um, still looking after him, a bit like you know Nissa in uh, Keeper of Dragon. You know. That's right. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely the Milko. Yeah, but I, I really love as well because she has to play that very robotic at mm. the beginning, the actress, and mm. then just keeps adding like more personality quirks as it goes along. And then the the payoff to that is she's like actualized as a yeah. person, isn't she? I just thought I, I just and and the chemistry between I don't know what the actress's name I should have done better. Margaret um, Flanny. Yeah, the chemistry between her and Eccleston was yeah. on fire throughout. You know, yeah. I, at the end when he's like, "Do you want to come with me?" I was like, "Please go with him." Yeah. Please. <laughs> like, remember in the last one, I was like, "Oh God, mm. please don't go with him." What was the woman's <laughs> name? Nova. So I've forgotten her name. Um, I would have loved for this character to go with the Doctor. So, and just they were a bit flirty as well, weren't they? It was just really fun that relationship. When I listened to it, I hadn't looked at the cast. I thought it was Gemma Whelan who played Zazie in the previous story. I thought they'd reused her in this because it sounded a lot like her. But as you say, yeah. it's Margaret Clooney. There's, there's a brilliant bit where they're she's listing the Doctor's basically like greatest hits she talks about the cyberman's tomb on telos yeah the exelon city you know oh my god his line there where he went it was a very <laughs> naughty city that was so funny and he's just you know like you say he did she's really got all these charges or all the things that he's done and he's just like oh well <laughs> like the inference there, isn't it? It's like, look at the ground the Doctor's covered, you know, at the end of the universe. Look at how much of the timeline that he's covered. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was great, the way you get a lot of Fred. She's, she's filing yeah. these reports, isn't she, about the Doctor? So you're getting like a third-hand account of what he's up to, which was, which was really fun as well. Um, and it gave you much more of an insight into her developing character than than you often get with a supporting character as well. So that side of it was really good. And, and I like the sort of the fairy tale like quality of this one. So as you say, Fred becoming a person is is like a Pinocchio or something like that. But then the Doctor being turned to wood and sort of tethered to the earth while these woodland creatures make oh, burrows the, around him. The fact him. that they were going to make like a super and, being out of a dead rabbit. <laughs> Funny rabbit. Yeah. Oh my god, that's brilliant. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've heard a lot of big finish stories. That's the best idea I've heard yet. I'll tell you. A regenerating bunny rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, oh, what we're we gonna do now. <laughs> oh, it was just so good. 
What about the idea about um, a maximised profit Doctor Who um, acting as a deity and, and sort of reaping in rewards from the home? I just thought that there's big ideas in this, isn't there? And they, yeah. they're almost like throwaway. They come yeah. in every scene. Um, yeah, I, I've not heard much from... Is it Timothy X Atac? Is that the right yeah. name? Yeah. Well, I wonder what the X stands for. Is that just him being pretentious? Um, but I want to go. I want to find more because I, I feel like he packed this full of details. It's, 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 it's such an epic scale, it, and and again, you know, you're talking about a very limited cast. But the way that you know it turned, you know, you've got the first bit where you've got Doctor and Fred, and the, he's he's sort of walking around, and they're talking about all the different races. Then you have the Doctor being immobilised, and you, like you say, you get to see it from Fred's perspective that Fred's going along and, and sort of nurturing him and, and, and sort of looking after the statue, etc. And then you get this sort of third part, which is the Doctor battling away for hundreds of years against the, the you know, the, this, um, is it the um, incorporation? He's battling away, and they're trying to break down his defences, like you say, to start minimising him and using him. But at the same time, he's doing exactly the same thing. He's tapping into their, um, you know, systems and things so that he can can gain leverage. And it, it just... I mean, this is like, you've just yeah. said tons there and, th- and this is an hour long you know they packed yeah. all of that into an hour I, I was really really impressed with the with the the writing of this story as as much as i was amazed by eccleston's range of emotions that he plays mm. across this and when you look at sort of the, the three stories um helen goldwyn's direction like in the first one it's it's kind of lots of intimate scenes of of characters talking in the second one it's you know very much the setting and the audio in this one it's really yeah. stripped back isn't it and it's basically the performances but boy the performances she drives out of this cast they were phenomenal yeah mm. Yeah, it's his bursting with and the humour in it, like you say, the it was a very naughty city is one of the funniest <laughs> lines in any Doctor Who story. Um you immediately conjure up the all the tentacles coming out the bottom of the city and, and creating havoc and everything. And I wondered the you know, at the end you find out that Sacristan Hinge has been working for the Incorporated all along and he says he's been promised yeah, fifty pounds. Oh my god. Immediately made me think of Tomb of the Cybermen. <laughs> yeah. When the guy says they promise fifty pounds to whoever can open the doors, fifty pounds for the man who can open those doors. Yeah, <laughs> and that's got to be a nod to that, definitely. Do you know what bit made me laugh the most? Um, about sorry, the excellent city thing was the funniest, but this was very funny. Inadvertently, was when they go, "Oh, uh, would you like some feedback?" And then he's tortured horribly. And I was like, "Oh man, I have to give feedback all the time at work. I wish I could. I wish I could do that. That'd be amazing." Uh, it, it, you know, it's. I, I, we look at the other two stories, and this is a very, very different. All three stories in this are very different in tone, in in the way that, yeah. It, 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 and I, I just think that if you look at this season as a whole, it's got everything you really want. Um, 
Do you remember what I said in, in Ravagers when I said like they've got really good writers for Big Finish and 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 really good directors, and why on earth are they introducing Eccleston on this tat? This had this this just shows the potential of bringing him back, and and how good it could be. So yeah, I I, I would suggest. But start if you here, listen to the commentary, the three writers were saying that they they had to write this quickly. Yeah, because there there were. They, there was um, the the ravages was being written or had been written, so they had to write these quite quite quickly, uh, and they weren't sure which was going to go out first. And you you kind of think, actually, that you know, if this was written at pace, if if they did have to to quickly jump to this, because I think they talk about the fact that they weren't sure whether the the sea, you know, whether it was going to go ahead. I think. Maybe Eccleston hadn't signed on the dotted line or something. And then they suddenly found themselves in a position where they're going to have to write these three stories. But if that's the case, I'd still say that these three stories are are just brilliant. You know, um, well, I don't know, like, because it, uh, what do you choose, though? Like, do you have this open it and, uh, and amazing, but then you get the difficult second album in Ravages? Where you're going, oh no, well, is that the direction we're going in? Or do you start with Ravagers and things can only get better from there? I guess the question, I would flip that back slightly and say, what would you have the third season be like? Would you rather have it as a three story arc or would you have three individual stories again? On the strength of this, the latter. And I think the third set's John Dorney and the Cybermen. I mean, that's going to be mm. incredible. Mm. That sounds like it's going to delve more into Doctor Who mythology, like we were saying with the Cybermen and the Brigadier, doesn't it? So it'd be interesting to... Because we didn't get an awful lot of that in Series 1 because it was a fresh start and introducing a whole new audience. So it's not something we've seen the ninth Doctor do much of, so I think that will be quite interesting. I feel like I need to say that um, you guys liked Ravagers way more than me, and I know I'm shitting on it from a great height right now. Um so yeah, that, that's basically just me that really hates Ravages. You guys thought it was pretty good, didn't you? I or, found it frustrating okay. the end <laughs> that you had a big reset. There was elements of it that I, I really liked, but this this is for me a much stronger side. So I, mean, I was going into this with like, okay, well, it isn't Ravages, so automatically it's better, you know. But on its own, on its own merits, it was better. Uh, with the last story, very quickly. Um, I just love the idea that Doctor Who basically takes on capitalism in its purest form throughout, you know, the whole of the universe. Because there's like a lot of Doctor Who stories, isn't it, where the villains are kind of out, out for profit and financial gain. And I, just, I thought this was done in a really sort of creative way to create, um, I mean, what are they, like, um, what, what is that? I, I couldn't quite figure out, was it like a conglomerate or was it an organisation? Yeah, but it, it was just it was I just I just thought that that to me felt very very Doctor Who. And did he come there all along to do that? No, I don't. Like, was that his purpose for coming, or was he? Did he go just to tinker with the history books? Yeah, he received a distress call as well. I think that um, that had been the trap that the Incorporated had set. So I think he was going to deal with that and then spend a hundred years correcting. Uh, all the information that, that Fred had wrong about all different races. 
How could I forget that? This is called respond to all calls. I I think, you know, the incorporation, I'm I'm sure this is their first story, but already they, they, to me, they felt like a really formidable end of season baddie, even though you'd never heard of them. I wouldn't mind hearing from, you know, because clearly they've they've done a lot of damage over the years. I wouldn't mind hearing from them again. You know, I, I would love the I love the idea that this entire last story was uh, written around the one line pitch of "I can't give rabbits <laughs> the power of regeneration." I, don't think, I mean, it probably wasn't, but I, I, that's what I like to think. Uh, can you imagine it? Uh, it I, I just thought that idea was brilliant. You know, and it didn't even occur to either of them to give the AI to give Fred. The uh, you know the the regeneration. It was like let's go and find a dead rabbit. Yeah, yeah, I love that one. And like you say, it'd be great. Uh, you you could have one of the past doctors meet them. Um, you know, the time before they'd entombed themselves on this planet, uh, and have a bit of an adventure with them as well. But as Ooh. a whole, like this 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 entire set, um, I just walked away with like yeah that. That's like that's the standard you should be hitting now. Mm. Yeah, yeah. This is a great set. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen, for for listening and for taking the time to come and discuss it. Joe, I'm really pleased we've given you the opportunity because normally on a podcast, um, you have to crowbar in criticism of the Moffat era. And this time you've had the opportunity to just crowbar in criticism of Ravages instead. So I feel like we've given you a nice... Um... Oh, can, well, can I just have a very quick moment? <laughs> because I was going to say, I was going to say this was um, the Knife Doctor's heaven sent because he's stuck in one place for a long time. He's trying to get out. It's a bit like a puzzle box. He's got to work his way out. But yeah. it's a bit more exciting than, you know, punching a fucking dreary crystal wall. For billions of years. <laughs> so there you go. There's your Moffat criticism. <laughs> I'm pleased you've stayed on brand. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Brilliant. Uh, so, if you'd each just like to let our listeners know where else we can find you and hear you. Uh, yeah. So, um, so I'm on Twitter as uh, Jixter2009. Uh, you can also find me. Uh, every week at the moment on YouTube with uh, Pbow and Jason and the Phantom Lads as we talk about different seasons of Doctor Who in talking about Doctor Who. Uh, and uh, podcast-wise, I can be found on Nine on Be Praise, which I do with uh, my wonderful friend Jack, um, and A Hamster with a Blunt Pen Knife. Uh, a Doctor Who commentary podcast of which Mark very recently came on and did a very eloquent, um, not defence, sorry, celebration of Deep Breath, Peter Capaldi's first story. And very quickly, just in response to your comment there about how the fact I'm always criticising Stephen Moffat, <laughs> um, the Night Movie Praise recently um, has covered season seven, so series seven, sorry, in a lot of depth. We did like three episodes because it was so long. And if you want to hear me being extremely positive about the Moffat era, the Series 7A um, segment, uh, I declared Amy Pond <clears throat> in that series, the half series, the best companion of the new series. And for that is the best consecutive run of episodes of the new series. So I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> 
I've, I've got that queued up to listen to. I need to listen to that one. Oh, you'll be astonished, I tell you. I take it all back. You can follow the Trap One podcast at Trap One underscore on Twitter, on Facebook at Trap One DW, and DW Trap underscore one on Instagram. You can subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. Please consider leaving us a rating or a little review. Uh, I also must say that the Maximum Power podcast is now available. As this one goes out, the second episode will be released tomorrow, which will be Sunday, and that covers Blake Seven with some familiar voices to listeners of Trap One and Flight Through Entirety and some other excellent guests. So do check that out, and I'll put a link in the show notes to all the podcasts that we've mentioned. I, you know, I listened to that last week, and it is fabulous. They've got a terrific lineup. Of, are you on that, Mark? I think you're on that, aren't you? I, I am, yes. Uh, but listen to it. Don't let that put you off. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else is brilliant. I've got a, a quick question to throw at the pair of you before we go. Sorry, Mark, hmm. I'm literally hijacking this now. Um, are we going to do the third set? This is so much fun. I'd love to. Yeah, I'd be up for it. I think that's going to be a good one to get our teeth into as well, like you say, with all the past elements coming back. I think that'll be a really interesting one. Yeah. Fabulous. It's a date. Oh, fabulous. It's a date. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.